This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences shows us how much we really have in common. I'm Condis Presley. My guest as we round out Black History Month is DeKalb CEO Michael Thurman. Now, before becoming the CEO of DeKalb County, Mr. Thurman served in the Georgia General Assembly and was the first African-American elected to statewide office without having been appointed to the position first. He's known as a transformer and as a transformative leader, having transformed the State Department of Family and Children's Services, Georgia's Labor Department, and the DeKalb County Schools. But that is not why he's here. He is here because he is a student of history and is a writer and published author. Among his books, and we're going to talk about them, are A Story Untold and Freedom, Georgia's Anti-Slavery Heritage, 1733 to 1865. That book is listed as one of the 25 books that all Georgians should read. Uh, Mr. CEO Michael Thurman, welcome. Thank you so much, Connor. Delighted to be with you today. Tell us about your interest in history, especially Black history. It began really as an elementary school student. Uh, my dad, believe it or not, in the early 1960s, bought a set of World Book Encyclopedia. Bought them on time. And back in the 60s, it's like having a family computer today. And my favorite uh, volume, of course, was G. And that's when I first became acquainted with Georgia history and just a, a small bit of history about Black Georgians. So that set it in motion uh, way back when I was a, just a third or fourth grader in elementary school at Lyons Elementary School in Clark County. Growing up in Clark County, did I read correctly, you are the son of a sharecropper? Yes, my father, my, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, all Georgia sharecroppers uh, were able to scratch a living uh, from the earth. And as you know, sharecropping basically replaced shadow slavery as a primary form of labor in rural Georgia. Uh, my father uh, was a hardworking man. I'm the youngest of nine children. And he was able to, just through hard work, determination, and faith, uh, provide for myself, my siblings, and my mother, uh, working the land in rural Clark County. Seeing what you saw of your siblings, your father, your grandfather growing up, how did that impact your aspirations for your future? I watched my mother, my father, my family, who worked hard every day. Uh, when we weren't working in the fields, my dad had a vegetable route, so we sold fruits and vegetables around uh, athens Clark County. And the thing that I remember most is wondering how, if you work as hard as they were working, how they were unable to generate a significant amount of wealth. And I just promised myself that one day, if I could somehow get in a position, I would try to make things better uh, for people around me give people an opportunity to support themselves, to generate income so that they can have a higher quality of life. That was a disconnect between hard work and being the, having the ability to generate a significant amount of income. You graduated in the first integrated class at Clark Central High School. Tell us about that experience. Oh, wow. It's extremely traumatic. Uh, it's been 51 years. We were supposed to have our Jubilee anniversary last year was delayed uh, because of the pandemic. 
but it was a traumatic time, but it was also a time of great conflict, controversy, but also opportunity. Prior to my senior year at Clark Central High School, I never had a conversation with a white kid. Uh, it's hard for my daughter and other people to really grasp how hard the lines were uh, by race uh, here in our state, not in the 1900s and not in the early 20th century. Kind of uh, Brown versus Board was 1954. The segregated system in Georgia was not eliminated until the fall of 1970, my senior year at Clark Central High School. And so it was a time of, of learning and I just, it was uh, sometimes confusing, uh, but it shaped my life in a very fundamental way because we like to say that we inherited that opportunity. We were the first generation through to understand what it was like to be in an integrated environment. This, and of course there have been some blacks who went to the all white system, but the great majority of kids like myself remained in the segregated system until the fall of 1970. Mm. And out of that came a story untold. Tell me about the book. Well, my senior year, uh, my, and one of the things we had fought for uh, prior to consolidation from Bernie Harris was that we wanted to have a black history course taught at then uh, Clark Central High School. Well, in the middle of the year, we realized that we had textbooks in every class, but the black history class. Uh, my teacher was a Miss Elizabeth King, who was a legendary educator in Clark County. And every day in class, we would complain about the fact that she was copying articles from Ebony Magazine and from other places. And we those were our textbooks, mimeographed copies. So we thought it was the epitome of, of segregation and discrimination is the fact that we didn't have a textbook. So one day I think she had grown frustrated with me and my friend Fred Smith. And she said, well, Mike Thurman, if you think that we need a textbook, why don't you go out and write one? If you want one, just that bad. And it was at that moment, that senior year in, at Clark Central, walking out of the classroom, I just, in my heart, said one day I was gonna write a Black History of Africa. I was 18 years old then, and of course, it did not happen until years later in 1975-78. But that was the germ, and that's what I tell educators. You never know when and how you might inspire your students to go out and make a significant contribution to our society. So I credit Ms. King with straightening me out one day in class and challenging me to, to, to address a wrong and hopefully correct it. And in an untold story, you document Black history in Athens, Clark County. What are some things that, because so many of our stories are, are untold and you're telling them that our audience would be interested and surprised to know or that we just don't know but should? Well, for myself, uh, one of the early chapters is about two African-Americans that really spurred the book itself, two African-Americans who were elected to the Georgia General Assembly during the Reconstruction period. I had never heard that one Sunday afternoon, I, I was at the uh, UGA library with my sister, Barbara, who was working on a master's and I read this um, uh, master's thesis and there it was, two former slaves elected to the Georgia General Assembly from Clark County in 1968. By the time I finished reading that, 
uh, our tears were running down my face. And driving back out uh, to Sandy Creek, which is out in the rural part of the county where we live, I turned to my sister and I said, I promise you, I'll be the next black man elected to the Georgia House of Representatives from Athens. And you and were. That, and I was. That was in 75. In 1986, 87, I was finally elected after three races. But history can be just the past, but properly embraced and understood, it can inspire and shape the future. So reading that thesis spurred me on to continue to be, write the book, but also to seek office uh, undergo uh, in the Georgia legislature. Uh, Madison Davis and Alfred Richardson uh, the first two black men. So finally in January of 1987, uh, when I actually took a seat from a historical perspective, I sat in a seat the last time an African-American from Athens had sat in it, he had been a former slave. You studied philosophy and religion at Payne College. You got your law degree at South Carolina. What was it like going to law school? It was quite the challenge. I remember uh, the first day in law school, well, at registration uh, for the fall semester, I'm walking into Carolina Coliseum, and there's this older white man standing there shaking hands, kind of a bent-up old guy. And I'm like, why is this old guy standing here in front of the doors of the Carolina Coliseum? Well, as I got closer, I recognized that man to be Strom Thurmond. And he would stand there all day and shake every hand. The senator from South Carolina. Oh, we, uh, we, yes. <laughs> but that sets the stage for, and, and Carolina is different from, because uh, I wanted to go to a school in the South. I, I, I was put on a wait list at, uh, I didn't want to go, I wanted to leave Athens, first of all, for whatever reason. I wanted to see some things other than my hometown. So my choices. Uh, was the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss or the University of South Carolina. I wanted to stay in the South because I thought that was very important. And so that's how I ended up at the University of South Carolina. But uh, I had the opportunity to work for a state legislator while I was in Columbia. I asked Levy Johnson and, uh, that, and his law firm. And that was a great experience for me uh, to see an African-American man of great influence and respect uh, serving in the House of Representatives. And that helped, once again, to fuel uh, my desire to come back home and to have a career in law and politics. And let me go back to the philosophy and religion, though. My mother sent me to pain to become a minister. That, that was my original calling, to be quite honest with you. And so I have a degree uh, in religion and philosophy. And, but I never, but somewhere along the way, I, I, I lost my way, so to speak but I didn't tell my mother. <laughs> so my mother for four years, I told all my her friends and relatives, Mike is gonna graduate, he's going into the ministry and he's gonna come back home and hopefully uh, he'll find him a church and we're gonna have this great preacher in the family. So this persisted for four years. And uh, so she was inviting all her friends to come to graduation to see this newly minted minister. So I said, well, you know what? I think I better tell him. That that's not the path I'm going to pursue. So I called my mom about a week before graduation. I said, Mom, I got to tell you, I'm not going into the ministry because I didn't get the call. And so the phone just went dead silent. And I can still hear my mom. She called my dad, my dad named Sidney. She said, Sidney, 
And she cried, she was crying, said, Mike says he's not going into the ministry because he didn't get the call. And I'll never forget what my dad said. He said, boy, he got the call. It's just that he wasn't there to answer the phone when it came in. <laughs> he was not <laughs> part of it. So, but, uh, but my ministry is public service now. And I enjoy it so much. And so the education I received, but focused on the Old Testament, uh, has been a huge, huge advantage for me because I also studied world religions and learning to respect people of all faiths and to acknowledge them and not just to respect them, but also to, to celebrate the differences among cultures and, and individuals and to recognize that there's really just one beam of light that flows through a prism and we see all the different variations. Of it. That's my understanding of world religions. And that's something I learned at Payne College. If you had to do it over again, having gotten your undergraduate at an HBCU and then your graduate degree at a state university, would you do that the same way? Oh, absolutely. I, you need both, to be quite honest with you. If at all possible, you need a diverse set of experiences. And it was very helpful. I think it was an advantage for me to have gone to all segregated schools and then at least having the one year at the fully integrated Clark Central High School because it was there that I began to recognize that in order to be successful, you have to be willing to expand your comfort zone. You have to become comfortable with people of different races, colors, and creeds. And that year at Clark Central and then, of course, at USC has really helped me uh, become a more effective public public servant. In your book, Freedom, you write about how African-Americans waged a historic struggle to abolish slavery. Tell me what you learned. Well, first, you, you know, and I, I always point this out, the book, the context, of course, is the period of enslavement, of legal enslavement here in America. But I don't necessarily focus on slavery. Uh, my focus is on resistance to slavery, right? And what history has taught me is that number one, enslaved Africans were not docile. They did not accept without resistance, enslavement. And much of that struggle has been lost because we don't understand it, it was a multifaceted struggle. Uh, we often read about Nat Turner and uh, Denmark Bessie who had an uprising, but there were many forms of anti-slavery resistance. It could be, uh, suicide, uh, individual acts of defiance. Uh, it was also running away. Uh, it was getting religion and developing a faith. Uh, it was also self-purchase. A large number of free Blacks actually purchased their own freedom from their enslavers. He said, well, how were you able to do that? Uh, many enterprising, industrious, enslaved persons actually worked out of an arrangement with the person who owned them to allow them to earn a salary using a skill set or having another job. And so there are scores, hundreds of examples of enslaved people who purchased their freedom as well as the freedom of family members and friends. So we look, and by the way, this anti-slavery struggle, as well as the abolitionist struggle, was a multiracial struggle. That were white throughout the history of America and, and even colonial British America, who openly advocated and fought against slavery because it was immoral. So it was really a multiracial effort 
led by black people, but also supported by white and Native Americans, particularly the Seminoles that existed in South Georgia and North Florida. So that struggle persisted over decades. And that's what I really focus on, helping people to understand how to fight back, even against insurmountable odds. And the most prominent white anti-slavery advocate that I focus on is a man that people in Georgia might know is James Oglethorpe, who was also the father of Georgia. And he is the primary subject of my latest book that'll be out hopefully in the summer. Uh, and I, the title is uh, The First Abolitionist, uh, James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia. As a historian, Mr. Thurman, what are your thoughts on how history is being taught in our schools these days? Luckily, I served as superintendent in DeKalb County for three years. So I was able to reacquaint myself with the various curricula that's being taught on um, social studies at you know, middle and high school. I think we need more. We need to strengthen, I think, the curriculum in terms of providing more information, not just about American history, but particularly Georgia history. And I think it's through history that we learn about who we are and more importantly, how we became who we are. And it's only if you learn from your history will you not, number one, repeat the mistakes of the past, more than two, you can use that history to inspire and elevate uh, individuals and, and citizens to achieve even greater things going forward. Uh, I'm a great supporter of it. I think we need more history and it needs to be even more prominently uh, portrayed in our schools. There seems to be great debate over whose narrative will be taught. 50 years from now, what do you think history will say about this moment that we're living through now? Well, there's always been a struggle over narrative, right? That, that uh, Someone would say that in the case of a war, to, you know, it's the victors who get a chance to write the history, right? Uh, in the Civil War, that was a little bit different. Uh, Post-Reconstruction and even into the 20th century, uh, by and large, it was the defeated Southerners who were dominant in writing what the Civil War and pre what followed that was about. The key thing about critical race theory is theory. It's not fact, it's a theory as to how you look at history. No, I would hope that no one has misinterpreted that to believe that this theory is in fact how history actually unfolded. We've had other theories being taught to define or at least create a narrative. Lost cause mythology is a theory as it relates to how and why the Civil War was fought. It's just a theory. And the theory is that the Civil War, the primary reason that the war was waged between North and South was not slavery. That slavery was not the cause of the Civil War. That's a theory as to how you would look at the Civil War and the aftermath of that war. That's all it is. And the critical race is a way I understand a theory that said that somehow uh, slavery was at the center or that America was born in 1619. It's a theory. It doesn't really say it's a fact, and no one is arguing that, I don't think. At least I'm not, because 1619 predated the establishment of the United States of America. So when you think about it, America was born with the U.S. Constitution in 1787, uh, not in 1619. The facts just don't line up, to be quite honest with you. I think the theory suggests that slavery was a part and parcel and center to the development of the United States of America. But the United States of America was uh, established in 1787. Let me tell you just 
having studied in a lot about colonial history, we overlooked something. You know, it was really England that pioneered the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't the United States of America. It was England. It was the British. They turned it into a booming international enterprise, a brutal, uh, uh, with endless riches. America adopted shadow slavery that was birthed first by the British. And you know, we often look at it as pure and American enterprise. Really, what? Really, it was a British enterprise that was transformed into an American enterprise with the adoption of the US Constitution that legalized uh, shadow slavery and being the United States of America. And then last question, looking into your crystal ball, 50 years from now, what will the historians be saying about this period of American history? What we're going through now, what will this history be? I'm encouraged, not discouraged, to be quite honest with you. Because if you look at the arc, the long arc of history, um, you know, it's only been 100, what, 60 years or so since the Civil War ended. That's the blinking of an eye when you think about the expanse of human history. And when you, and you've traveled overseas to England or, or to Italy and some of that more ancient civilization, and we're talking about a, a nation that's just 300 something, you know, that's like nothing. You know, it doesn't even count really when you look at China and look at Greek, the Romans and the Greeks and even the British and the French. So we're, very, we're a very young nation and you know, we shouldn't take too much for granted. But I think ultimately history always corrects itself. Uh, this is just one period in that process and it's not new. What is going on now is not new. That's the other thing history helps me to understand that this fight over the narrative over how history is going to be taught or will be taught is new. You know, one of the reasons why public education was segregated was that was an attempt by the state to defund and cripple children of color. They didn't want them to get access to a quality education. That's been part of who we are. And they didn't want them to have access to knowledge and, and, and opportunity. That was, and so that they would be less competitive when they became an adult. It wasn't just race. That was a more practical, uh, I think, motivation associated with it, but we overcame it. That's the point that I never lose. No matter what the obstacles are, because of number one, the art always been toward justice, as Dr. King said, and justice will always prevail. The two books, A Story Untold, Black Men and Women in Athens History, and Freedom, Georgia's Anti-Slavery Heritage, 1733-1865. Again, one of the 25 books all Georgians should read, both authored by our guest, DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman. This has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Delighted, Pons. Stay right where you are. In our next Perspectives, you'll meet author Kimberly Williams. She wrote, Dear White Woman, Please Come Home and it's not what you might be thinking. This is Perspectives. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program produced with you in mind. If there's a guest or an issue you'd like to hear me explore, I'd hope you'd let me know. The easiest way to connect with me is on social media. Just slip me a DM or send me a message. Search Condice Presley on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And yeah, I know you're asking, how do you spell Condes? C-O-N. 
D-A-C-E. And Presley has two S's. That's P-R-E-S-S-L-E-Y. Friends, I appreciate your listening. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time as we explore new perspectives. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.